Welcome to the DSO Decision. This is a podcast for dentists and who are looking to learn more about the big topic in dentistry right now, whether or not to sell to a DSO or DSOs taking over. This podcast is 20 episodes, about 20 minutes each. We'll talk about the background. And it is a conversation between myself. I'm Brian Hanks. I'm your host. And I am joined by David Cohen, attorney at law, owner of Lowen, uh, Lowen, <laughs> Cohen Law Firm PLLC. Uh, David, you've been in the industry 15 plus years, somewhere probably between 500,000 DSO deals. So credibility up the wazoo. Uh, David, say hi. How's everybody doing? I'm, I'm really excited to be doing this. Uh, you know, Brian, I'm privileged to be on your podcast. I know Thanks. that... Um, you have done a lot of these and I just feel privileged to be part of this. Thanks. Yeah, you and I know each other. We're friends. We uh, don't uh, officially, you know, we're not in business together officially, but we are, um, I, I'm an accountant by trade. I help um, a lot of buyers uh, buy dental practices. I've helped some sellers. We've helped with the DSO decision. Um, I run a site called dsocompare.com where we look at the decision and try to break down financially and, uh, and, and uh, life-wise, whether or not buying or selling a DS into a DSO is a good idea. Uh, but just so cards on the table, it's two friends, one accountant, one lawyer, uh, people that deal a lot with dentists in transitions and have some things to say about uh, DSOs. Uh, so for the listeners, let me tee up how this is going to go. That we are releasing this podcast like a Netflix season because the DSO decision comes. Uh, it, this isn't a show that makes any sense to do like on a weekly basis, right? So if you're a dentist and you're listening to this, um, you know some DSO approached you, they took you to lunch, or they they paid for a fancy dinner somewhere, and you've got questions. And the goal of this show is to give you 20 episodes, each about 20 minutes long. Uh, because that's the average commute time in America. <laughs> that's why we chose that number. There wasn't any uh, great strategy behind that. And uh, by the way, uh, this show is not going to be ad supported. So you're not going to hear a bunch of advertisements. You're not going to hear David and I pitching a bunch of services and courses or things for you to spend money on. Uh, yeah, like, listen, if you like what we have to say and you think, for example, hiring David would be a smart move on the legal side, um, I would agree with you. That is super smart. But that's not the point of this podcast. The point of this podcast is to get useful, helpful information out there to people like you. So in this first episode, um, we're going to talk uh, about whether or not buying or selling to a DSO is a good decision. I'll lay out the agenda for a second. But David, just to introduce and put cards on the table. Okay, uh, You're an attorney. You've done over 500. So you know, probably closing in on a thousand DSO deals by now. Uh, you and I have co-presented at places like Seattle Study Club. And I know in general, would you agree that you you would say you're biased a little bit towards DSOs? In other words, you generally speaking like the business model and tend to think it's a it can be a good decision for a lot of dentists? Yeah, I, I definitely am supportive of the DSO structure. Uh, I'm the first to say that DSOs are really good for some sellers and not as good for others. And it has to be the right fit. And I do, I'm, I'm the first to say that for some doctors, DSO sales are not the right fit. But in general, I am pro DSO because I've got a lot of happy clients that have sold to mm -hmm. DSOs. And I think that if you go through the process the right way, uh, you, you'll have some good results in the end and, and some really happy, um, and I've had some really happy clients accordingly. Yeah. And that's always stood out to me when you present is just how happy a lot of your clients are at, at the decision of selling to a DSO. 
I tend to be on the opposite side, just so biases and cards on the table. I tend to be less of a fan of DSOs in general. And just like you, David, I've seen the, this is the decision to sell through DSO be absolutely the right thing to do for a number of dentists out there. And I've been um, an, an advocate and a supporter of that decision for um, a lot of dentists. So well, my biases tend to be kind of away from the DSOs model. You tend to be a little bit more towards it. Um, you and I are both smart enough to know that there is no one cookie cutter right answer for everybody. So just so people know that going in and they can listen uh, appropriately. So David, the model for our podcast is I'm going to play uh, the straight man. I'm going to play the, the interviewer. You're going to be, and this isn't hard to do because you are, the expert, the man with all the answers. <laughs> and <laughs> and uh, throughout, you know, I've got my experiences and my, um, you know, uh, things that I, I know and can teach along the way. And so you and I will have a conversation. But just so uh, people are listening, they know um, Brian's going to be the guy asking David the questions. David's going to be the super smart one with all the answers. And I may play dumb at certain points and ask stupid questions. And, <laughs> and you can laugh at me and we'll have a good time. Well, I definitely don't have all the answers, I, I would say, um, but, uh, but I'm definitely looking forward to talking. No pressure. I want all the answers. Okay. <laughs> Here's our agenda today. So for the season, we are going to get into the nitty gritty of the DSO decision. So not, we're not just going to talk at a high level about um, you know, the industry and why or why not selling to a DSO. We, we'll, we will have some of those discussions, but we'll get into the very nitty gritty specific details of, for example how you might be approached by a DSO, what a letter of intent looks like. And then once you get an offer, there is a ton to consider uh, from um, holdbacks, subordination, restrictive covenants, equity interests, ancillary documentation. We've got uh, details on lease assignments, mistakes that a lot of dentists make in the process. And we'll get into um, very minute detail on a lot of this. It might be good to have a pen and paper as you're listening to this. I know the average podcast listener won't do that. Uh, so these will be out there for free for anybody. And uh, you can listen to them at any time. Um, so today's episode is to sell or not to sell. Uh, so David, here's my agenda. I just want to talk about five things. Number one, what are we defining as a DSO? Number two, what percentage of total dental practices in the US are DSO owned? We have some data. Um, what types of practices are being targeted today by DSOs? And what would you say goes into the DSO decision beyond just the money? Because a lot of people talk about the money, but I think there's more to it. And then let's wrap up by talking about who should be on your team to help you get through this decision. Fair enough? That sounds great. Look forward Perfect. to it. So David, when you hear the phrase DSO, dental service organization, how do you define that in your head? What do you, yeah, what, what's your definition? So the definition of a dental service organization traditionally was an organization that provide bona provided bona fide services that are non-clinical to dental practices, such as billing, accounting, collections, etc. And this was a model that was used for companies that would literally just provide these services at arm's length to practices in exchange for fees. What happened was that people started to learn that dental practices were great investments and that it was a great opportunity for those that even weren't licensed dentists to participate in. The problem is most states require that a doctor has to be licensed to own a dental practice. And so how could people who were not licensed dentists own practices? Well, the DSO model was sort of the foundation for that because 
people started to think about the fact that they could provide these non-clinical bona fide services to dental practices in exchange for fees. And they could also own all of the non-clinical assets of the practice, such as furniture, fixtures, equipment, supplies, things that you know, you or I could own, Brian. So um, when they put two and two together and, and learned that they really could probably own as much of the practice as they could without technically owning the clinical side, and that they could keep the doctors that are licensed in on the clinical side, they found sort of like a loophole, I would say, to be able to sort of own the practices without owning the clinical side of them. And so how I view DSOs now is a lot different to circle back to answer your question. It's a lot different than it used to be. It used to be that I just viewed them as bona fide service organizations that provide services to practices that were well needed to practices that didn't want to do all of the, the management and business side of things to now I almost view DSOs as, um, you know, private equity backed companies that are owning practices. And so, and I think that's actually what scares a lot of doctors. And, and you know, I know that we'll get into that as we go uh, further into the podcast sessions. Totally agree. I agree with your your sum, summation of the background there. Um, I've looked at a lot of dentist tax returns. I see how much profit the average dentist takes home. And yeah, I mean, it is kind of tempting to say, here's this business model where you are literally the safest loan on the planet right behind the only loan that's safer are funeral homes. And uh, so it's this almost risk-free business, which, you know, a lot of dentists chuckle at when I say that, but it's this risk-free dent- uh, business and, um, you know, because people are going to be eating sugar and not flossing and forever. And, uh, and yeah, I mean, I've looked at the numbers and thought, man, if I could just hire a dentist to make me rich, I'd do it too. So <laughs> yeah. I don't blame private equity for doing it. So let's, let's take a, we're recording this in June, 2023, uh, just so people know kind of the date on the, the calendar when you're listening to this. Um, I've got some stats for you, David. I'm curious if any of these uh, surprise you. So a lot of folks wonder, you know, how many dental practices are owned by DSOs. And uh, so some interesting stats from an ADA Health Policy Institute study done last month. So May of 2023, uh, DSO affiliated dentists, so not offices, but dentists, uh, are 13% of the uh, total dental population in the U.S., so 13 out of 100 dentists in the U.S. are working with or affiliated somehow with a DSO. And here's here are some interesting stats. Um, a lot of people are wondering, like, what, you know, definition-wise of a DSO, like, are we talking two locations, 10 locations, 100 locations? Uh, and it is kind of difficult to pin down because if you're, like, let's say, David, you own five dental practices in the L.A. area where you live, um, you know, you're not registering with someone. Like, right, there's no, there's no um, directory of all the DSO owned dental practices. So this is a, a tricky thing to nail down, but the ADA Health Policy Institute did it, okay? Um, if you define a DSO as more than 100 locations, then 9% of all dental practices in the USO are DSO affiliated. So 9%, uh, that's 100 plus locations. So I would imagine that those are your Heartlands, MB2, you know, big, big, DSOs. Okay. If you draw the box from 50 to, you know, 50 plus, the number goes to 11%. If you draw the box from 10 locations on, it goes to 15%. Okay. So this is again, according to the ADA. Uh, So, you know, if, if you want to count just two locations, now we get into about 25% or 24 point something percent. And, and, 
you know, I would argue maybe three locations isn't a DSO, but maybe it is, right? Depending on their uh, their trajectory, their goals, um, you know, what they're trying to accomplish. Anything about those numbers surprise you, David? Um, it, they do surprise me. They surprise me because probably half of the purchases and sales that we do are DSO deals. And so um, I thought the number would be a lot higher. Uh, it's really interesting to hear, um, you know, the numbers. I think most people would be very surprised by that, too. And I think that, that those numbers would provide a lot of people comfort that are in the industry that are sort of anti-DSO that think that, you know, they hear DSO has taken over the entire industry. And really, we're only talking about a 10 percent yeah. uh, clip there. And, and frankly, I think the DSO deals are slowing down a bit just with the lending environment that we're in. So, um, yeah, that is definitely surprising to me. Well, think about the I forgive a lot of dentists for thinking like like you are. You're seeing half your deals on the legal side as because somehow affiliated with or involved with the DSO. And I think if you're the average dentist who pops on Dental Town a couple times a month, reads a few articles, maybe Dental Economics shows up, the actual, you know, the magazine. Um, if you're a publisher or you're uh, somehow in the industry or an owner of one of these big Facebook groups, um, people click on and they want to read about the, the DSO decision, right? And, and a lot of the data. So I think there is this sense that um, DSOs are totally taking over and it's just a matter of time. And listen, I'm not here to predict the future and I can't tell you whether or not that's true. Again, my card's on the table. I tend to think dentists are uh, too interested in control in their career to let DSOs own 100%. But um, I could be wrong. And the trajectory is certainly for more DSOs to be out there than, uh, than there were two years ago, five years ago, 10 years ago. So it is an interesting question. It is something that people need to be aware of. So let me ask you this, David, half your deals, um, you know, or it somehow involved with the DSO. What are you noticing about the, t the kinds of practices that are being targeted by DSOs? So if you're an owner or you're going to be an employee in a type of an office, like what are the chances you get targeted for some kind of DSO offer or, you know, them wanting to buy your business? Yeah. So I think that, you know, it used to be that we never saw a practice that was, you know, less than a million or million five that was, um, that, you know, from a valuation standpoint, that was going to be a candidate to be bought by DSO. We're seeing that we've seen that go down. And we've even done DSO deals that are in the five hundred to seven hundred thousand dollar range, um, but most of the time, the the, the enterprise value, which I, we will get into in future episodes, the, the, the value of the practice typically is going to be at least uh, uh, you know a million and a half to two million to qualify to be um, purchased by a DSO. Um, also, you know, the flip side of this is that for the doctor themselves. Um, you know, oftentimes they're not even able to sell to a private buyer because lending will only lend up to a certain amount. And I, again, well, I hate to tease everyone, but, you know, we'll no, yeah, need to talk exactly. about these in future episodes. So I would say that as far as what the DSOs are looking for, I think they're looking for, first of all, the type of practice that their specialty is. So like we, there are some specialty DSOs out there like that only do endo or that only do perio, or that only do ortho, right? And then you've got some DSOs that do it all. And you've got obviously DSOs that only do GP practices. And I would say the majority of DSO practices out there right now are GP practices. 
there's been a wave of the specialty practice. It's almost like a second wave that's occurred yeah. where specialty practices are now being targeted. But that wave came after the GPs. And so when you're talking about what these DSOs are looking for, I think, number one, sort of like what specialty that they're specializing in. Number two, if they are doing all specialties, they're probably now leaning toward looking for more specialists, I would say, just because there's been so many GP acquisitions. Um, and then also, I think they're looking for a good partner. You know, I think it, you know, from a personality standpoint, uh, these DSOs are looking for someone that's going to be willing to stay in the practice and work in the practice for multiple years after the closing and be a good partner and help them grow the practice, grow the business, be that clinical owner, um, really manage the, the clinical side as being sort of like a clinical director, so to speak, um, and be involved. So I think it's what's the specialty they're looking for? What's the size of the practice they're looking for from a monet monetary standpoint, which is usually got to be typically over, you know, one to one and a half at a minimum. And then um, also they're going to be looking at what type of doctor they're dealing with, what the relationship is going to be like and how willing that doctor is going to be to work after the closing and be a good partner with them because they're investing a lot of money and they want to make sure that, you know, the, the doctor that they're investing in is going to be part of it and is going to help them do what that doctor's always done and more. I hear you saying if you run a practice that collects more than $2 million, you're almost guaranteed to be targeted by DSO. And if you're between one and 2 million in collections, it's likely that you'll be targeted by a DSO under a million, uh, hit or miss, depending on region and some of those things, just on the collection side, is that pretty close to what you were saying? Yeah, exactly. Perfect. And then what I also heard you say was, if you're a specialist, you're a little more likely to be targeted today. Correct. And those yep. valuations um, for specialists are typically going to be higher than they are for the GP mm -hmm. practices. Yeah, and we can get into why, but uh, the average specialist tends to be about 5 to 10% more profitable than a GP practice in general, uh, just on the averages. And, you know, that's the numbers nerd in me coming out there. So, okay. The other thing uh, I'll say too is there are certain DSOs that sort of like have a niche of a certain yeah. dollar range of practice that they're looking for. Um, like there's some out there that I typically see consistently doing the smaller practices on purpose. That's kind of their model. And I say smaller, you know, it's still, still probably a big practice, but um, smaller in comparison to the other DSO practices. And then you see some that typically are looking for the larger deal. So it's really on a case by case basis, but in totality, if you're a doctor who's looking to sell to a DSO, you're, you're typically, if you're willing to work in the office and you're willing to be a good partner going forward, and you also have a practice that's, you know, collecting in the ranges that Brian just referenced at a minimum, you would be a candidate. Got an email this morning from a broker in Florida. The email said, and I'm paraphrasing a little bit here, um, practice collects a million dollars. We just secured for them a $3.1 million offer from a DSO. Call us today to figure out how to get your own offer. Okay. So that's the pitch. Right. Everybody hears the money pitch. So, dude, what kinds of decisions go into whether or not to sell to a DSO besides money? Money is a big part. In fact, a lot of the, the, the 20 episodes we're going to have are going to be focused on the financial aspects of the offer. But it is more than just the financial. So can you talk to when you're having a conversation with one of your clients and, and you guys are just kind of chit chatting and 
they're talking about maybe something they, they were talking about with their CPA or their wife or whoever, or their, their husband. Um, what tends to come up besides the money when you're talking with these clients? So I, I think the biggest thing that comes up is that DSOs sort of got a bad reputation to start with because the, the reputation was they were all about the margins and they would come in and just wreck the whole practice take, you know, change everything that was good and, and about the practice and everything that the practice was founded on. And I think DSO started to figure out that they weren't going to be able to acquire many more practices if they didn't change. And so what you're seeing is a lot of DSOs out there now starting to allow doctors to run the practice like they always have. And I even get doctors that, that come to me and say, it's really weird, but I don't really notice any difference. I still go to work. I still do the same things. It's like I hardly even realize that I sold to a DSO. Um, yeah. And I think that's the model that's starting to work for doctors. And so I'm seeing less and less doctors um, sort of like adverse to the DSO model. But I think um, the things to answer your question, the things that doctors need to look at when deciding is number one, control. Because when yeah. you sell your business you are relinquishing control of the business. And if you're not comfortable relinquishing control, and if you're not comfortable being accountable for the fact that you just accepted a large sum of money in exchange for giving up the control, then this isn't gonna be a good fit for you. You know, we've got a lot of doctors who wanna take the money, but they're not accountable and they don't understand or they still, you know, they still want all of the control and the power. And this is just not going to be the case. And, and for the doctor, they have to understand that if they just paid millions of dollars for a practice, they also would want the control as well. So doctors have to understand that from a legal standpoint, they're not going to have control of the practice in a DSO deal. But that's the legal. And there's always a legal reality and a practical reality. And it's up to you as a doctor to talk to the DSO and really get a trust going to understand that even though they do have the lever to exercise the power and the control that they still are going to listen to you as a doctor and still going to take your input as the person who's built the practice to what it is and be a team going forward. And I think that's the cover zone the doctor has to get to. But if, if doctors just under no circumstance want to relinquish that control, mm -hmm. the DSO is not going to be a good fit for them. So that's one thing that the doctors really need to decide on is if it's not monetary is are they willing to relinquish the control? Yeah. The second thing that the doctors have to really examine, aside from monetary, as you mentioned, is are they willing to continue to work in the practice for multiple more years? It's very difficult for a seller to sell to a DSO and work any less than three years. And I would say that most of the time, these DSOs are requiring five years. Um, you can probably get away with three if you're kind of on the road to retirement and you have a, an agreement up front with the DSO about that. But there has to be a willingness to work. So if you're only wanting to work one more year as a doctor, DSO is probably not going to be a good fit. You might find one that will buy you under certain special circumstances. You're not going to get stock. It's going to probably be at a lesser valuation. You know, there, there could be some concessions made, but Typically, you're going to have to work. So I think the biggest two things that I can think of that are not monetary are, are you willing to relinquish the control and are, are you willing to continue to work in the practice for multiple, multiple more years? What percentage or does it even happen uh, that your clients talk about the effect on the industry and the effect on patients? Uh, do, do a lot of dentists worry, oh, my gosh, if I sell, then what does that mean for, you know, 
buyers in the future or the future of dentistry? Does that come up at all? And then similarly, do, do the, the doctors worry about what a DSO might do to patient care? Uh, I, I think that there was a lot of fear about that initially when these DSO deals were, were getting done. And I think now the D, a lot of these DSOs have convinced the doctors that they're going to keep the same quality that the doctor always had in the office. And in fact, that they're going to require the doctor be in the office doing the work. And the doctor then would just have to make sure that, you know, for instance, that they get to use the same labs that they always got to use and that, you know, the quality of that isn't going to go down. So they'd have to come to some certain understanding with the DSO to make sure that that quality um, continues. But where I used to see that being a large concern before, it's a lesser concern because A, these DSOs are selling that well, and B, a lot of these doctors have friends that have signed up with these DSOs that can attest to the fact that they are allowing them to keep the quality the same way that it was. And so I think there used to be a lot of that. I think there still is a little bit, but for the most part, I think the DSOs have done a good job of uh, of selling that they're not going to change things dramatically. Nice. Okay. Let's punt the discussion on who you should have on your team uh, to our next episode. We're going to talk about uh, letters of intent, actually the offer that you might get from a, from a DSO. Uh, David, thanks for uh, being part of the DSO decision. Thanks for having me. Excited for the next. <laughs>